You know, there's a lot of things that are going on right now, and we need to be in prayer. Our nation is faltering. Uh, people's marriages are faltering. There's a lot of things that are uh, just not right in our nation, and we need to be a people of prayer. And I believe that God is calling us to a deeper commitment to that thing. So let's bow our heads and let's go before the Lord. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, as we come tonight, we just ask that you would be with us. Father, that you would guide us and you would teach us. Father, you would show us things. Father, you'd reveal your truths and wisdom to us. And Lord, we ask that you be with us now. Father, I ask that you give clarity of mind, articulation of speech, boldness of spirit. Father, as I preach. Father, I ask that you give each one here ears to hear, hearts to receive, and a will to be doers of the word. Father, I just pray that you would be uh, strong in us, Father, to just uh, reveal yourself. Father, give revelation. Open the eyes of our understanding tonight and make the word come alive in our lives. And we'll give you all the praise for it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, tonight I just want to talk about pleading our case before God. We've talked about that before. That's a, that's a subject that we've hit upon in times past. And I would just like to hit upon that and just point out some uh, things about that and really how that applies not only for our lives individually, but it also applies uh, to praying for an entire nation. And I want to show that to you through the Word of God tonight. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 43, verses 25 and 26. This is what it says. And it says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Now, those are some almost odd-sounding verses. And in Isaiah 43, 25, and 26 God knows this, that he must uh, forgive our sins. Then he can put those out of his mind. And there's a sin consciousness in our relationship with God before the cross in the Old Testament, before we're born again. And that is this, that our sins, it says our sins separate us from God. And that's, and that's really true, that our sins have separated us from our God. It says that numerous places in the Old Testament, that sin separates you from God. Everybody say, sin separates us from God. Sin in us creates a sin consciousness in us that kills faith. If you have a consciousness of sin, you're going to have a hard time believing, coming boldly into the throne room of God in your time of need for grace. You're going to have a hard time coming to God because John says this, if your heart condemns you, then God is greater than our heart, and God can still provide it for us, but that doesn't mean that we can receive it. Because how many of you know the greater part of faith in receiving from God is on our end to receive it? You see, the Bible says for, uh, you know, what sort of things do you desire when you pray? If you believe that you receive them, you'll have them. And really, the receiving part is the greater part because God has already provided all things pertaining to life and godliness. We've talked about that a lot. And it says, let... Uh, you know, if any man needs wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally. And let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like the wave of the sea. Let not that man think that he'll receive anything from God. See, the receiving part is what really needs to be worked on. And when we have a sin consciousness or a fear consciousness or a defeated consciousness, we will never have, I believe that I receive with an open and ready heart to receive because there will always be a hindrance 
where there is a sin consciousness. You know, we need to realize that, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is for us today. It says, For he hath made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. How many of you really know that you're the righteousness of God? Now, that's different than being holy. We are all working out an element of holiness. We're all holy before God positionally. We're all righteous before God positionally. We're all forgiven before God positionally, but we still work out our salvation daily. We make sure we make our calling and election sure. Those things are our responsibility. We're called to purge ourselves, make ourselves a vessel of honor of silver and gold. So, God says it. Let me read it again. He says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. In other words, he marks them out of the book. He says, I'm the one that marks them out of the book. All your sins, transgressions are sins. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember thy sins. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that he's no longer holding our trespasses against us. Did you know God doesn't want to have any consciousness of your sin either? Did you know that God casts your sin as far as the east is from the west? How many of you know he throws your sins into the sea of forgetfulness? How many of you know if you want to forget your sins, take God times a million, he wants to forget your sins even more? Because he knows that you're his children that he created for fellowship and your sins separate you from him. And he loves us too much. Can I get an amen? So he blots out our sins by going, coming to earth, becoming a man, dying on the cross, paying the price, adjudicating our sin, presenting us to him holy and righteous in our standing. Now, we're still working it out in our actual living, but in our legal standing before God, we're forgiven, we're righteous, we're his children, and he wants us to be able to be viewed by him in that context. Does that make sense to everybody? See, then things can begin to happen. Now, it says this after that. It says, I even I blotteth out thine transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember thy sins. Now, if, you're in, if, you're, if you have your Bible right there, you ought to, I will not remember thy sins. Say that with me. I will not remember thy sins. Remembrance is a key part of understanding these two verses. Because verse 26, it starts out, And he says, put me in remembrance. And that's referring to his word, his promises. In other words, he doesn't want to remember your sins, but he wants you to remind him or put him in remembrance of his promises towards us. Now put me in remembrance and let us plead together. You and Jesus, Jesus is our advocate. My little children, I write these things that you may sin not. But if any man sins, we have an advocate with a father, Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation of our, not only of our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So it's nice having a Jewish lawyer in the court of heaven for us. Can I get an amen? So let us put in remembrance, and every good lawyer puts the judge and the jury in remembrance of the laws that are, how can I say, suitable and advantageous to the case of their client. Can I get an amen? So they're putting that jury in remembrance. Well, this law says this, and 
And they're putting that judge in remembrance, this law, and, and legal precedent that came before. And so put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. This is like a judge. You know, how many of you know Satan is the accuser of the brethren? He's the prosecuting attorney. But Jesus is our advocate. He's our intercessor. He's our attorney who stand on our behalf, became a man, became part of the human race, took on the sin of the human race, paid the price and the penalty for the sin of the human race. So put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. And declare it. Declare it. So I, I put it this way. God knows that he must forgive our sins. Then he can put them out of his mind. It's legally taken care of. The fine is paid. I don't need to think about it. I, I can cast it over in that sea of forgetfulness now because now everything is okay. I went and I paid for it. It's taken care of. And God is at peace with that. Can I get an amen? amen. And then the next verse, and then he can put back into his mind what our case is and what we need to have for us to plead before him. And he can put it in his mind what we're saying. He can put in his mind the promises that we're bringing to him to remind him, not because he can't remember them, but he's, he's going to see if we're in faith about it. And then he can begin to hear what he has already said and begin to act on it. You know, the James 4.3 principle comes into play here. You have not because you what? Ask not. Ask not. See, God, for some reason, and, and I, you know, we need to plead our case, and you, know, you might think, well, why can't God just do it? He knows what my problem is. He knows what my needs are before I even ask. Why doesn't God just take care of it? God knows what we have need of before we ever ask. He's the omniscient God. He's sovereign God. Why doesn't he just deal with it? I don't know, but he's chosen to do it like this. John Wesley said this, it seems like God is limited by our prayer life. He can do nothing for humanity unless someone asks him to. But I'll tell you why that is. How many of you know this in Psalms 115, 16? It says, the earth is the Lord's and he's given it to the sons of men. Did you know that we are the possessors of the earth and we're the stewards over the earth and we have dominion over the earth? It says, the earth is the Lord's and he has given it. He has given it. Ever say, turn your name and say, he has given it to us. We're the stewards over it. God said in Genesis 1 and 26, he says, be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. My dominion is my domain. My domain is my, how can I say, my area that I have authority and governance over. Wow. Well, I thought, God was the judge of all, I mean, the, the Lord, and had authority over everything. Yes, through us, because he delegated us. Well, the state of Iowa has authority, yes, but it's vested in that police officer that drives by and gives you a ticket. <laughs> well, I thought we had authority. I thought we were the state of Iowa. We the people. That's true. But it gets vested in certain individuals. How many have ever met one of those police officers that gave you a ticket? And you realize he did have authority. His badge was his authority, and his 357 was his power. Those are the two words for authority in the Bible. Dunamis, which means power, and azusia, which means authority. 
he gave us authority in the earth. He said, behold, I give you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And I give you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means harm you. God has been given, excuse me, man has been given God-like authority in the earth. Oh, why? Because we're made in God's image. God is the ruler of the universe, and he has angels, a servant class. And he has children, us. We're made his image. We're to rule over the world. We have a servant class, animals. Adam named them all. And then we have children. One's made after our own image. So we really are in the image of God more so than what we even realize sometimes. Turn with me to Psalms 8 4 through 6. Psalms 8, verses 4 through 6. Look what it says. We're going to get to the prayer part in just a minute here. I'm laying a foundation. We want to go into this, the proper foundation. But we just, we have to plead our case before God sometimes. Now, I'm amazed at this Psalms 8, verses 4 through 6. It says, what is man that thou art mindful of man, and the son of man that thou visitest him? In other words, why did you come to earth in the form of man? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. And that's an ancient biblical way of saying that we have authority over all things. Wow, even circumstances. But, you see, Adam and Eve... They committed high treason. And God says, obey me. Don't eat of the tree. Obey me. To whom you obey, you make your Lord, the Bible says in Romans 6.6. 6. To whom you obey, you're making your Lord. Some people, their God is their belly. Their belly is their God, it says. They obey their belly all the time, and God says that's their God. Their belly is their God because they always obey it. What you obey is who you make Lord. And they made Satan Lord when they obeyed him and ate of the tree instead of obeying God and not eating of the tree. Can I get an amen? So Satan became the God of this world. How do you know that? Because 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, it says, If our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the glorious light of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Satan's the God of this world. How many, how many of you know that Satan's the God of this world? He's not the Lord of my life, but he's the God of this world and the world system. And it says he who is friends with the world is an enemy of God. He that's a friend of this world is an enemy of God. And I believe this, that many times what we don't realize is Satan is more welcome in this world than God is. How, how welcome do you think Jesus is down at the porn shop, down at the bar, down where they're, they're all smoking pot and cursing and ignoring him and using his name in vain? How, how welcome do you think God feels there? How many, how many think the devil feels pretty welcome in that crowd? 
That crowd's growing. It says in the last days, perilous times will come and men will be lovers of themselves. And it goes through a long list of dastardly character that will begin to overtake the culture in the last days. And so we know that the devil, he's the God of this world. But praise God, he's not God over us. And we have authority over him. And really, if the world would get saved and, and realize that they've got authority over him, he couldn't control them the way he does. But they don't, they don't know any better. And so we put God in remembrance. And, and again, it doesn't mean, you know, and I, I've told this story before. You know, I promised Rachel that we'd give her 100 bucks every semester that she got 4.0, which she did almost every semester. And, 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 but I would kind of let it go, and I wouldn't pay her $100. And she'd come up to me and say, Dad, I need to remind you, you said that if I got 4.0, that you'd give me $100. Well, I'd have to go get the checkbook. She's a smart kid. She knows how to work this thing, this plead in your case. She put me in remembrance. And, and I had to, you know, she, she didn't have any uh, sins in the grade department. I had no consciousness of her academic sins. I only had consciousness of the remembrance of what I was supposed to do for her. Can I get an amen? There's a lot of similarities between that and what we're talking about tonight. So, it's an amazing thing. We put God in remembrance, not to test if he remembers, but he tells us to do that to see how tenacious we're going to be in faith. When we put him in remembrance, he doesn't really forget. Do you really think God forgets something he doesn't want to forget? He only forgets those things he wants to forget, like our sins. So he wants to blot out our sins so he can forget those. He wants us to remind him of his promises because he wants to see us operate in faith. God's word accomplishes that thing, what it's sent forth to Isaiah 55 says, that uh, the word does not go void, but it always accomplishes. When his word is sent out, it does not go void, but it always accomplishes that thing that's been sent forth to do. Turn, let's just turn there, Isaiah, and it's in Isaiah 55, 11. This is, this is a great scripture. Then go ahead and go to Jeremiah 1, 12 after you hit Isaiah. I want to I just point these. These are, these are great scriptures that we can stand on. I love this verse right here. And I'm going to actually begin in verse 10 and then 11. It says, For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh and bring forth and bud, that it may have seed to the, excuse me, they may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I Please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. How many know sometimes it seems like God, uh, his word isn't working? Anybody ever feel like that before? It feels like that sometimes. I know, we've all felt that. But he says it will accomplish that thing that's been sent forth to do. We've got to stay in faith so that applies to us in our life. God's word will always bring healing to the person who believes it. God's word will always bring deliverance to the person who believes it and receives it. It always accomplishes that thing that it's sent forth to do, but we can abort it. We can cause it not to work in our life, even though it has the power and it does work every time. God's word never fails. We only fail 
to believe it and receive it. So those are things that we need to remember. Jeremiah 1, and God is concerned about his word being carried out. God is very much thoughtful in overseeing uh, the words that he speaks over us. Jeremiah 1 and 12, and it says, Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. Wow. And I, I believe this, you know, you can go into other translations and it, and it says it a little differently, that God watches over his word to perform it. Hasten is kind of a, a word you don't hear. That's kind of an old King James type of word. But God watches over his word to perform it. God says it'll always accomplish that thing that's been sent forth to do and it'll never return void. So we need to get on board with God's word. Can I get an amen? amen. It'll carry us and it will take care of those things that we are faltering in. That's why in 1 John 5.14, this is one of my favorite scriptures, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his word. Now, here's the funny thing. This is the way some people actually interpret that. This is the confidence that we have in him, his sovereignty. And that's true, and that's good, but it can be misleading. This is the confidence that we have in him, his sovereignty. Well, that's true, but to what degree do you want to see that sovereignty? He sovereignly has set it up this way. This is his sovereignty. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, we know that he has granted us the petitions that we have desired of him. See, that's different than the way we think. This is the thing. This is why we've got to plead his case, and we've got to be like a good attorney and bring our scriptures with us to plead our case with and put him in remembrance of those scriptures where he has promised us those things. Can I get an amen? amen. See, we don't think that way naturally. We think naturally that the sovereignty of God is that we can abdicate all our responsibility to him but really, he gives us responsibility that makes him no less sovereign, not one iota. But he does require certain things of us. Can I get an amen? It's so important that we understand. This is the confidence. See, my confidence is in God, yes, above my own abilities. But John says this is the confidence. Let's all just turn there. You ought, to just, you ought to mark these scriptures in your Bible. These are important scriptures. This is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask... See, that's like Wesley said, it seems as though, and I'll read it again. John Wesley, I wrote the quote down, it seems like God is limited by our prayer life. He can do nothing for humanity unless someone asks him. But that's really verified the James 4, 3, we have not because we ask not. And it says, and you ask, but you ask a miss. What's a miss prayer? A prayer that goes amiss instead of hits the target. What is a, can anybody tell me what a misprayer is? I misprayed that. Is when we don't pray according to God's word. That's a miss. Because this is the confidence we have in him if we ask anything according to his will. And his will is his word and his word is his will. How many of you know there's no difference between his word and his will? How many of you know this word right here is his will? And his will is revealed in his what? His word. Amen. So, we, we really need to understand that 
This is the confidence we have in him if we ask anything according to his will or his word. We know that he hears us, and we know that he hears us. We know that he's granted us the petition that we've desired of him. So, so those are powerful scriptures. Okay, now I'm going to give you two examples. I'm going to give you an example of this pleading your case with God where he is blotting out our sins for his own sake, in other words, but then where we are putting in him in remembrance of his word. Go with me to Isaiah 38, 1 through 5. It's the story of Hezekiah. This is a remarkable story in the scriptures. This is absolutely a remarkable thing that we can see how powerful it is to plead our case with God. How many of you know that when you plead your case, you know, someone can bring, how many of you know the prosecuting attorney can bring a charge against you? And you can be completely not guilty, and he can bring a charge against you. And if you don't stand up and defend your case, how many of you know you get put in jail for not, for, and be completely not guilty? How many of you know if somebody brings a charge against you, you better learn or get somebody who knows how to plead your case? How many of the devil is bringing charges against us every day? How many of you know the word Satan means accuser? And Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And God runs a legal court in heaven. And all the words and all the terms that are used about prayer, all are terms that are used in a court of law. And so this is why we plead our case. And look at this. It says, in those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And Isaiah the prophet said, excuse me, the son of Amos came unto him and said unto him, thus saith the Lord. You know, when you say thus saith the Lord, a lot of times we think that could never be reversed because a thus saith the Lord is a thus saith the Lord. Now we're over there in Isaiah 38.1. And he said unto him, thus saith the Lord, set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. How many of you know that's not good news? David says, I will live and not die. I don't know why they said it that way. He'll, he'll die and not live. To me, if you die, of course you're not going to live. David said, and I'll die, I'll live and not die. And to me, if you live, of course you're not going to die because you're, you're living. But that's the way they said it back then. For thou shalt die and not live. This is the prophet speaking by way of prophecy unto Hezekiah. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord. I would say prayed unto the Lord. And look how he started his prayer. Can anybody tell me how he started his prayer? And said, remember. Everybody say, remember. He started his prayer by telling God to remember. Now, what did we just read out of it? I'm going to read it again just so you don't forget. I'm going to put you in remembrance of his word. Look what it says over there in Isaiah. Go there quickly. Put me in remembrance and let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Put in remembrance. Hmm. Now, Mr. Hezekiah wants to be justified. He wants to live. He wants to have some justification to be able to get to live as he uh, pleads his case. So first thing he does is he tells God, Now remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee, how I walked before thee in truth, 
and with a perfect heart. So he starts to plead his case. I beseech thee how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in the sight, in thy sight, excuse me. And Hezekiah wept sore. So he starts out by bringing God into remembrance of some things that he seems to think is going to qualify him to be able to have power with God to change his situation. Well, see now, when we think about putting God in remembrance, we always say in remembrance of his word. Is there anything there that Mr. Hezekiah was saying that would be a reference to God's word, why God should do something on his behalf? Can anybody think of a verse of scripture that would tell me what might Hezekiah, excuse me, Hezekiah be referring to when he says, thus saith, uh, he says, I beseech thee how I have walked before thee in truth with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in, the, in thy sight. Well, let me take you to a scripture that I believe, and it's very clear to me that his request to put him in remembrance and then what he was putting him in remembrance of was a scriptural request or a scriptural uh, putting him in remembrance of. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles 16.9. So let's go back. 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. God's looking all over the earth for this type of person to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him. So if you have a heart that's perfect towards God, you can claim that God's eyes are looking to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for somebody to show himself strong in the behalf of. Because it says that his eyes look throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on the behalf of them whose what? Whose heart is perfect. And what did Hezekiah say about himself when he was putting God in remembrance? He said, remember, Lord. And he says about how I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth with a perfect heart. Well, that's just exactly what it says there in Second Chronicles, that if you have a perfect heart, God will show himself strong on your behalf. God will work powerful things on your behalf. How many of you know Hezekiah had a scriptural basis for asking what he asked. Thank you for your tremendous enthusiasm. We have to have a scriptural basis when we go before the judge and we've got to ask him according to what he's already said with his word. Can I get an amen? Because we're putting him in remembrance. Putting him in remembrance of what? His word. Putting him in remembrance of what he said, just like my daughter put me in remembrance. I said I'd give her 100 bucks if she'd get a 4.0. And as we, as we do that, we can see that it has results. Look at four. Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, The God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, and I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days 15 years. Well, now wait just a minute, Pastor Bill. Because the first thus saith the Lord, said, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. That's verse 1. And then we go down to verse 5, and it says, Go and say unto Hezekiah, the same prophet, the same God, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David, thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears, I will add unto thy days 15 years. 
Where before it says, thou shalt die and not live. And then he says, I will add unto thy day 15 years. Is God double-minded? No, God is moved by our faith. Can I get an amen? amen. I'm going to tell you something. God is not moved by your, by your uh, pain. God is not moved by your problem. God is not moved by your situation, your lack of money, your sickness, your disease, your great sorrow and pain and hurt. God is not moved by any of that. God is moved by your faith. Faith is what moves mountains. Can I get an amen? God is not moved by any of those things. Because he was declaring he was going to die. But when he rose up and said, God... But you said in 2 Chronicles, now he didn't say this, but you know that's where he got it. 2 Chronicles 16, 9, that anybody whose heart is perfect towards you, you're willing to show yourself strong on the behalf of. Because that's what he used to plead his case. was something that was directly out of God's word, the principles of God's word. Can I get an amen? You cannot move the hand of God when you use principles of human sympathy. You cannot move the hand of God with human sympathy. I'm so sorry. You're not going to move God with a bunch of unscriptural prayers, no matter how many, how high you heap up the prayers. And you may pray five times a day like a Muslim, but you know, until you pray the word of God, you won't be born again, you won't be healed, you won't be changed until you pray the word of God. Amen. God is not moved by quantity of prayers. God is not moved by quantity of pain. God is moved by the quality of your prayer, whether it is a scriptural prayer. And if it isn't, then you're not going to have any results. You see, the Bible says, he who turns his ear away from the hearing of thy law, even his prayer is an abomination. When you turn your ears away from hearing the law, that's Proverbs 9, 28. When you turn your ear away from hearing God's law, because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If you turn your ear away from hearing this word, which would make you to know this word, when you turn your ears away from the word, from knowing it, your prayer becomes an abomination because then you think you can ask anything you want. But I'm going to tell you something. You can't ask anything you want. This is the confidence that we have in him if we ask anything according to his will. You can't ask things according to your will. That's why so many people today don't get prayers answered. Say, see, it doesn't work. I'm out of here. Because they're arrogant and they think that they're going to turn... God, God, you know, like twist his arm and get him to do their will instead of us doing his will. We're here to fulfill his will. He's not up there to fulfill our will. Can I get an amen? amen? We're here to fulfill his will. He is not here to fulfill our will. And let me tell you something. We can plead, but when we know what his will is, we can go into that. When we know what the laws are, and we've got a good attorney who knows what the laws are, we can go boldly into that courtroom and begin to declare, well, the, the law says this, Mr. Judge. And you know what? Because the law says it, the law is bigger than you. Unfortunately, now with our activist judges, it isn't. But the law should be bigger. And the law says this, Mr. Judge. And he has to say, you know what? You're right. The law is bigger than me. It does say that. And I'm going to uh, give you, you know, what, what you need as a, a judge in a courtroom. So let me go to the second one. There's another case, not just Hezekiah who reminded God of his word. Go with me over to um, Numbers, the 14th chapter. How many of you know God judges individuals in this life on judgment day? And he judges individuals even in their life. 
So God has a judgment for individuals. And, you know, we can go to Revelation 21. We can go to 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17, and, uh, or 5, 7, excuse me. We can go over to Corinthians. We've got a place in Timothy. We've got numerous places where God tells us that we're going to be judged as individuals for our life. Matthew 25, it says nations will be judged or peoples will be judged. How many of you know nations just comes, is, is basically the word ethnos? That's where we get the word ethnicity. So different peoples, people groups. That's where the word nations actually comes from. And now it means geographical areas too. But also we can plead our case before God concerning peoples. And that's what I want to get to tonight. In America, when we've killed, we've been guilty of killing 60 million unborn babies. God has a right to allow 60 million of us to be killed at any time. Because his law requires that if a man takes another man's life, then that man's life should be taken. And when we as a nation have taken six, and we've legislated it, not truly, but through activist judges, we've got court cases, and we are killing millions and millions of babies. We are spitting in the face of God concerning marriage and gender identity and all these things. And when we look at that, we see, wow, we could come under judgment any time. And there's a lot of prophecies about America that says we're just about ready to come under horrific judgment and massive devastation. So we need to pray. And the Bible talks about how there was a time where God was so mad at the children of Israel, so ticked off. Psalm 711 says, God is angry at the sinner every day. Now, he has placated that wrath in the New Testament for those who are his. But there will be a day of wrath and a day of judgment for those who reject his mercy. Can I get an amen? Amen. Because if you reject his mercy, there's only one thing left for you is judgment. And you're putting yourself in harm's way when you reject his mercy. And then you will receive his judgment. So Numbers 14, God was really angry at the children of Israel because he saved them, his mercy, and then they grumbled and said, all right, let's go back to Egypt. And when he, he saved them from you know, Pharaoh, who was a type of the devil, he saved them from Egypt, was a type of world. He saved them from the slavery, which was a type of sin and bondage, and he brought them out of Egypt, and he took them through the Red Sea, which is a type of baptism. He took them in and gave them the promised land, which is all the promises of God, if they would just take it and receive it. And he gave them all these things, and he set them all up, and all they could do is complain and say, let's go back, and he brought us out here to kill us. How many of you would find that pretty irritating? Well, God had that to deal with with the children of Israel. And let's pick up the narrative here in Numbers 14. And 11, and the Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? I will smite them with pestilence and disinherit them and will make thee a greater nation mightier than they. In other words, we'll get rid of these nuts, these knuckleheads. And then Moses goes into pleading his case. Now let's look at this. And, I, and he says this, And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it. For thou broughtest up this people in, the, in thy might among them, and they will tell it to 
the inhabitants of the land, for they have heard that the Lord art among his people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by day in time in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if thou shalt kill all these people, so God's talking about killing them. Look at that, verse 15. Now, if thou shalt kill all these people, as one man, then the nations, now we're talking about nations and national judgment, which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land, which is swear unto them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. In other words, they're going to blame it on you, God, and say it's a shortcoming that you have, not your people who don't have faith and won't obey you. So in other words, this is what Moses is saying. God, it's going to make you look bad if you kill them. It's going to make you look like you aren't big enough to bring your people into the land. It's going to make you look like you started out halfway through and you got them out of Egypt, but you couldn't get them into the promised land. It's going to make you look like you don't finish the job, God. And that poses a real problem. This Moses guy, he's a pretty good lawyer. He's really pleading the case pretty good. Can I get an amen? I mean, he got God's attention. You get God's attention, you must be pretty good at pleading your case. Somebody say amen. amen. And then what he does is he starts quoting Exodus 34, 6. He starts putting God in remembrance of his word. Now, God wasn't planning on letting Hezekiah live, because, but when somebody came and pleaded their case and used the word of God, and this is the conversation we have if we, if we use his word, if we pray his word with his will, and all of a sudden, he gives Hezekiah 15 more years. Here he is. He's mad at the children of Israel. He'd like to kill him. He's getting ready to kill him. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes to plead the case. But then the, 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 the stickler is he begins to use his word. He says, now I beseech thee, let the power of thy Lord be great according as thou hast spoken, saying. In other words, but God, you said this in your word. Just like when Hezekiah was saying, but God... Over there in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, you said in your word that your eyes seek to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking for someone that you can show yourself strong on the, behalf of, on the behalf of whose heart is perfect towards you. And Lord, I've had a perfect heart. Instantly, God changes and gives him 15 more years. Here, God's getting ready to kill these guys. And he's saying, you know, you shouldn't really do that because all the rest of the world is going to look at you and think you're the failure instead of the people. He says, now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great. Let the power of my Lord be great. Let the power of my Lord be great according as thou hast spoken. In other words, God's power will be great when it gets lined up with what he has spoken and we begin to speak it and we begin to believe it and we show that to God and then he'll begin to fulfill what he has already spoken in his word. Amen. Somebody say amen. Come on. That's what it says. And then he begins to read and he begins to quote what God has said. Not what he says, but he starts saying what God has been saying. The Lord is long-suffering and great in mercy. Oh, God says, oh, no, I don't want, you know, I'd like to kill these guys. Now you're talking to me about my mercy. And the Lord is long-suffering and great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, under the third and fourth generation, pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, 
according to the greatness of thy mercy, because you said you were merciful, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So he based his prayer on, number one, pleading his case. He based his prayer, number two, on scriptural precedent. In other words, what God has said. And then God says something absolutely amazing in verse 20. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to, does it say my word or thy word? Well, we know it's his word. But when his word stands alone, it's just a Bible. When his word becomes our word and we begin to speak it, it becomes faith. Can I get an amen? amen. Because what does Mark eleven twenty three says? Verily I say, and whoever shall say to this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. It doesn't just say you'll have whatsoever God saith. It says you'll have what you saith. Because God's been saying it for thousands of years. That's no big deal. He doesn't need a revelation. He doesn't need to begin saying what he says. You need to believe, and you need to begin saying what he says. Somebody say amen. Come on. It's true. We need to begin saying what he says, and that gets his attention. And he pardoned according to his word. Wow. So here's God telling Clearly saying, Hezekiah, you got to die. Then Hezekiah starts to plead his case and starts using his word. He says, Hezekiah, you're going to live. You brought me in remembrance of my word. Here it is. He's saying a whole nation, he wants to put them to death. He wants to start over with a new people. And then one man stands up, Moses, and says, yeah, but you said that you pardon people. Your word, I'm going to quote it now, here it is, Exodus, and it's out of Exodus 34, 6. You said that you will pardon people. And what does it say? And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. Now, how many of you thought you could change God's, God's direction? See, if, if you're hardcore predestination or, or, or determinism, really, then you think everything is set and you can never change anything. But I'm going to tell you something tonight. You can change more than you think you can with prayer. You can change a lot more than you think you can if people will pray. If my people, which were called by my name, will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways. And if we'll begin praying, I believe a lot of the things that could be coming our way in judgment can be averted and that God can show mercy on our land once again. Amen? He can heal our land. He can show mercy. He can forgive us. He can give us a new direction. And I believe that we need to plead the case before God. Let me give you one more. Genesis 18, 20 through 23. Abraham pleads his case to God. Look look over here in in Genesis 18, 20. Genesis 18, 20. I remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Exodus 18.20, and it says, And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come up unto me, and if not, I will know. And the men turned their face, and these are the two angels, from thence, and they went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord, And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? 
Hmm. Think real hard now. Where was another place in the scriptures that would have preceded Abraham saying this, that he could have had... How many of you know the Bible was passed down by oral tradition before they wrote it down? I think somebody told me that Adam's, it was just Adam's grandson was still alive when Moses wrote this because they lived to be 800, 900 years old. So oral tradition only had to go two or three generations. I can usually get the message from Grandpa Tweed uh, to grandson Samuel pretty easily without a whole lot of variation. We're talking about oral tradition. Okay, so now here he is saying, now Abraham is saying, now you, you wouldn't, God, you wouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked, would you? See, he knows his nephew Lot is over there. He knows that Lot is, is righteous. Because it tells us that over there in 2 Peter, it says Lot was a righteous man and that Sodom and Gomorrah vexed his righteous soul. It says that. So we know that there was at least one righteous man living over there in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot had a wife and two daughters and two son-in-laws. And he's, he's, trying to, you know, he's trying to deal with God because he goes on and he says, now you wouldn't if there were 50 righteous people, and you know, I think he goes to like 30 and 20 and, and 10, and he keeps asking, would, would you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, that wicked, wicked city, with 20 people? You wouldn't do that, would you, Lord? Because that would mean that you killed the righteous who didn't deserve to be killed. God says, no, I wouldn't do that. He says, good. How about if there's just 20 righteous people? You wouldn't destroy the city if there's 20 righteous people now, would you? God says, no. And he says, what if there, he says, I hate to bother you one more time, but I'm going to ask you one more time, God, would you, you wouldn't destroy it if there was even just 10. See, now he knew there were eight in, his, in Lot's family. God says, I won't destroy it if there's 10. But I got news for you. How many of you know there wasn't, there wasn't 10? Because Lot's two son-in-laws looked at him like he was crazy and said, when did you get religion, dude? Angels came and said, we're going to destroy Sodom. That's in chapter 19. That's just a few verses later. And his wife was told, don't look back or you'll turn into a pillar of salt. She so loved Sodom and Gomorrah and its lifestyle. Her husband was a big honcho. He was a judge at, judge people at the gate. She couldn't stand it. She looked back to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible says she turned into a pillar of salt. That's what happens when you look back. How many of you know Jesus said, don't look back from the plow if you're called to be a disciple. Right. Never look back. She looked back. The two sons wouldn't come out. The wife halfway came out and looked back. And then the two daughters came out. They couldn't get the Sodom out of them because then they molested their father after they got out of Sodom. And the only one that's listed in that family as being righteous was Lot. But there is one other family that very strongly parallels this. Who can tell me who that family is? It's the family of Noah. And so where could Mr. Abraham get a scriptural precedent to go into the courtroom of God with and plead his case for not destroying the righteous with the wicked. Well, let's go back to Genesis 6 and see if he wasn't borrowing some verbiage from Genesis 6 where God said he would not destroy the righteous or that he would save the righteous 
out from the wicked. Well, that's exactly where he got it, was from, was from Genesis 6. And we can look there in Genesis 6, and we can look at the verses of scriptures uh, in 6, verses 7 through 9, and it says this, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the fa- off the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I made them. See, it said they thought only upon evil continually, and the whole world was filled with violence. The world was a bunch of terrorists back then. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And why? He says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man. And if you look in many other translations, it says Noah was a righteous man. In one translation, it says, and Noah was the only righteous man or the most righteous man on the earth. And that's why when Mr. Abraham went to God, he says, you would not destroy the righteous with the wicked. In other words, hint, remember Noah, who you wouldn't destroy with the rest of the people who were the wicked. So he uses a scriptural precedent. He uses God's word. This is the confidence we have in him. If we ask anything according to his word, we know that he hears us. Or you could say according to his will. And he knew that this was the type of will that God had was to never destroy the righteous with the wicked. So when he said to God concerning Sodom and Gomorrah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that Genesis 6, 7, 9 thing for us, would you now? God says, yeah, I, I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. But again, he asked for 10. And there wasn't 10, so he had to destroy the wicked, but he took the righteous out from among the wicked. See, he pulled him out, and he says, build an ark, and we're going to start over. Just like he pulled them out of Sodom and Gomorrah, he pulled Noah out of that Genesis 6 wicked world and where there was the great flood. But in both cases, wherever you see someone standing in the gap, whenever you see someone pleading their case, they never omit to bring Scripture, whether it be just in principle whether it be referring and citing another precedent in Scripture that is similar to theirs, but there is always his will or his word being referred to as the reason why God must honor their request because they're bringing him in remembrance of his word. How many of you know bringing God in remembrance of his word is pretty powerful? A lot of people say, well, Pastor Bill, why do you constantly just pray the Scriptures? Why do you ask pray the Scriptures? And I, and I would say... How could you think you're going to get your prayers answered if you aren't praying Scripture? Because that's just your idea. That's just your will. That's just your thing you made up. That isn't anything God promised. All the promises of God are yes and amen to the glory of God. Not all the desires, not all the wants, not all the requests are yes and amen. All the promises of God are yes and amen. You can't just ask, well, I want this. You know, I want, I want my neighbor... Uh, to divorce his wife so I can marry her. I want that new Corvette that my friend just bought last week. Let him die and give it to me, God. How many of you know all these types of requests aren't very scriptural? But there's people that'll pray like that. They're just foolish enough to believe the devil and and, and start praying perverted things like that. That's really going to get him in more trouble with God because God says don't covet. And uh, so, but but let me tell you something. When you begin to bring God's word to him, what's God going to say? My word's no good. Oh, I changed my mind. What's God going to say when you bring his word to him? Think about it. What is he going to say? He's going to say yes and amen. 
All the promises of God are yes and amen. amen. Yes, and so be it. I mean, what's he going to do when you bring his word? You bring him in remembrance. He's really waiting to see if you remembered his word. How many know God never really forgot his word? He's really waiting to see if you'll remember his word. And then it, the, the, the scripture comes true. If you abide in me, and if my word abides in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Amen. How many of you know we need to know God's word before we go to praying? Yes. If you don't know God's word, how are you going to pray? When we pray God's word, it's a very powerful thing. It isn't how beautiful you can make your prayer sound. It's not how poetic and eloquent it isn't how long, it's not how loud, it's not how deep and profound, it's not how heartfelt, it's not how needy your prayer is, it's not how much you're hurting, it's not, God's not moved by any of that, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but God's not. God is moved by his word and your faith in it. Somebody say amen. I know that sounds mean, it sounds harsh, but I'm going to tell you something, smarten up. Because there's a lot of hurting people that never get their prayers answered. See, it says over there, For we know not how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that knows the mind of the Spirit makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. It says we don't know how to pray, but God can pray through you. Because he knows the exact will of God what to pray. And he makes perfect intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And then it says, and then all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to their purpose. But you got to remember, Romans 8, 26 tells us we don't know how to pray. You got to remember that it says the spirit can pray through us. You got to remember that when the spirit prays, he knows everything. And you got to remember that when he prays through you, you pray the perfect will of God. And you got to remember that you can't take verse 28, that all things will work together for good, if you haven't read and exercised verses 26 and 27. Amen. Because I'm going to tell you something. Not all things do work together for good in a lot of people's lives because they haven't prayed. I've seen people, when tragedy comes, that everybody rallies around God, people get saved, great things happen. But I've also seen when tragedy comes, there's some people who aren't praying people and they become bitter and they hate God and they die and go to hell. Things didn't work together for good in that one. That's because we misunderstand the scriptures and we don't take all the world, all the, all the word and all the counsel of God in his proper context and rightly divide the word of truth. Come on. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up tonight. We need to be praying. We need to be bringing God's word that he has mercy. If he had mercy uh, in those days on Hezekiah, if he had mercy on the children of Israel, if he has mercy, as it says in Exodus 34, verses 6 and through 8, that he can still have mercy on America today. How many of you believe God can still have mercy on us today? Amen. And that God can still forgive our sins today? Yeah. Amen. I believe that. I believe that. And you say, well, what if he doesn't? What if there's just so many wicked people? Well, I know this. Either God is going to show mercy on this land where I live, or God's going to take me out of this land so I, I can have uh, escape judgment. How many of you believe you can escape judgment even if others can't? Some may be too far, and God can't pardon them at some point. But God can make sure that we don't get burned up in Sodom. God can make sure that we don't have to drown in the flood. We can be like Noah, and we can be like Lot, and we can be... And a matter of fact, those two people are pictures of the believers in the last days, by the way. Amen. Let's pray.